you'll join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, this morning we are going to look at verses 13 and 14 as we continue in our short series, Who Do You Think You Are? We've been dealing with our identity. And this morning, the title of our sermon is Man, O Man. Our keywords for our worshipers in training are man, strong, and tender. In the uh, Disney movie, Lion King, everything in the universe is a part of a massive energy. How many of you know the song, The Circle of Life? Here's some of the words. From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun, there's more to be seen than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. Some say eat or be eaten. Some say live and let live. But all are agreed as they join the stampede, you should never take more than you give in the circle of life. It's the wheel of fortune. It's the leap of faith. It's the band of hope till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle, the circle of life. Some of us fall by the wayside. Some of us soar to the stars. Some of us sail through our troubles and some have to live with the scars. There's far too much to take in here. More to find than can ever be found. And here's the line, but the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. So there is, the song is telling us, no creator. We all live in a circle of life that has swallowed up God. And it's the sun that keeps great and small. It's the sun that holds everything together. And as a result, all of us are one. The sun, the earth, the moon, the stars, the sky, the land, the sea, the animals, people, all of us are one in the circle of life. Now, this is not an uncommon concept. Many non-Christian religions use circles as the symbol of expressing this all-is-one philosophy. Hinduism, goddess worship, New Age, uh, Taoist uh, physics, witchcraft, even the parliament of world religions. You may not have even known that exists. All of these have this universal idea of unity, and it's represented by circles. This circular, all-is-one idea, it inspires, they say, a deep ecology, which ends up in the worship of Mother Earth. Now, last week I shared a quote from a 2015 article from the New York Times Magazine, and the main point of the article was that in Western culture now, quote, there's a sense of fluidity and permissiveness and a smashing of binaries. We're all becoming one another. Now, the New York Times was celebrating that reality, that our identity is something that we try to define, that we make an attempt at communicating on our own terms, and that in the end, the identities that have always been utilized in Western culture are now being broken down and reformed and overshadowed by new ideas, new concepts, and new identities. No longer do you have to be a man or a woman. You can be gender fluid or transsexual or pansexual. 
But as you read this article, one of the things that fascinates me is that the writer is communicating that by everyone defining themselves as individuals, somehow we're erasing distinctions and we're all becoming one. We're all joining in to the circle of life. This is called monism. And by finding God in oneself, monists believe that divisions are broken down to accomplish God's love by uniting everyone together. We are all just smaller, cloned versions of this great divine circle, which means that we are outside the jurisdiction of anyone's authority. We are a kingless generation. And of course, that means that if we are God, then we get to make our own rules. So what is the result? Well, one way to see what the result is, is to look at the academy. Ideas begin oftentimes in the academy, and then they get taught to impressionable young undergraduates, and then they get into culture during the next generation. At Harvard Divinity School, students, uh, studies are now dominated by the feminist perspective, and in an article entitled, What's Up at Harvard Divinity School?, the writer laments that Buddhist chanting and meditation are now more popular than hymn singing, and the Christian calendar is passed over in favor of pagan holidays. Feminist goddess worship is the grid through which religion, through which Christian theology and the Bible are all now interpreted, and as technology continues to advance the opportunity to bring the world together in many ways, many religious organizations are working hard to bring about this one world reality, this so-called idea that Christian, so-called Christian scholars believe that the Spirit's present work in the world today is not about understanding the truth and the doctrine of Scripture, but more so it's about shaping all of the world's ideas into one unified singular belief. Monists believe that the real problem is a lack of knowledge, the knowledge of ourselves as divine. We've forgotten our true nature, they'll say. That's the problem. We have been lulled into this metaphysical amnesia or spiritual sleep by the illusions of this physical world around us. So the monist points an accusing finger at all of the structures that have, at least at one time, been considered natural and healthy and right. And if you had to name what structure, what institution the finger is being pointed at in our day in such a way that it's considered the most destructive, what institution do you think that is? I think I can argue quite convincingly that that institution is the home. And more specifically, it's the ideas within the home of manhood, of womanhood, and a structure of a family and what God has intended for that family to be with expectations about roles and behaviors. And when all of us are one with God and God with us, and we're all monists, there's, there's no place for manhood or womanhood or what it even means to be a child. There's no room for a father's loving authority in a home or a husband's leadership of his wife or a wife's nurturing kindness for her children and love for her caring husband or a child's obedience to his parents or a child's conforming to the standards set in her home. The idea that anyone would say, this is what a man is and this is what a woman is and this is what a child should be, 
That's archaic and restrictive and repressive. It's the patriarchal hierarchy trying to assert control and dominance over a person's individual freedom that allows them to decide who they are. Monists identify old-fashioned black-and-white thinking like this with Western Christian culture. So be whatever you want to be, do whatever you want to do, but by all means, please do not insist that there are standards for what it means to be a man, a woman, or a child. Now that, of course, runs completely contrary to what we see in Scripture. And as we consider walking through this series about identity and think more about our identity as God's people living in God's world, this morning we're going to begin considering this idea of biblical manhood. Next week we'll look at womanhood and then we will look in the final week what the Bible has to say to children. So this morning in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14, we see some very specific direction in the Bible about manhood or masculinity. Very simply and yet very importantly, we see truths that really strike at the heart of this idea that there are no distinctions to be made. They strike right at the heart of this monist idea of erased boundaries. And they show us quite boldly that there are, very, are, in fact, very explicit lines that are drawn around what it means to be a man. So let's read the text together. Very short, very simple. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul writes, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So very simple outline this morning. We're going to follow right along with the text in order to answer the question, what is a biblical man? And this is vitally important for us to understand. It's critical to understand in our world what a man is because there's so much confusion and there are so many competing voices in our ever-tolerant world that means to be tolerant today is to accept everything other than a consistent biblical worldview, especially as it relates to gender roles and sex and sexuality. So we're going to look at five things that Paul teaches us here about biblical manhood. The first is that biblical men are watchful. Biblical men are watchful. He says that in verse 13. He says, be watchful. Now, I am generally not a fan of new laws in a society for numerous reasons, but I was very thankful this year when Georgia decided it was time to become a hands-free driving state. Nationally, 25% of all driving accidents are as a result of distracted drivers, and 58% of all teenage crashes are from using telephones while driving. We have a lot of things to be distracted by already when we're driving, so when smartphones were introduced into the equation, it's like a bunch of drunk drivers on the road. Now, I'm sure all of us will admit that we have used our devices while we're driving at some point in time, but when this is our regular practice, there's a principle that applies here. And it's the same kind of thing we're seeing here, that we need to be 
watchful, that we need to be alert, we need to be aware. And that's what Paul is commanding, that same kind of idea. Don't, don't let the things around you distract you. You need to be watchful. That is to be constantly on alert, to be, to be awakened. And if we're not watchful, what's the implication? The implication is that we will crash and we will die. That's a hard, harsh reality, isn't it? It's the same reason why in other aspects of life. We do things like install security cameras or hire security guards. It's why on the battlefield there's always a perimeter around the main force who's, who's doing whatever action is taking place, that there are no attacks from the outside. And so if we're not watchful, those who seek to do us harm will, will gain advantage over us and we will have no warning. So in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is specifically addressing those who would seek to attack the Christian faith, who would seek to attach, attack the church, and they would sneak in as false teachers, they would catch the church unaware, and Paul is calling on the church to stand firm and to be bold in what they've been taught in both word and deed because it is the right combination of these things that enables Christians to progress in the faith and to persevere in life. Now, some of what we are looking at today is not just for men, it's for Christians in general. It's certainly important that Christian women are also watchful. But there is a unique calling on men in this area of watchfulness. Watchfulness over the church, watchfulness over one's family, watchfulness over our own souls. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls men to lead and to love in a way that Christ has led and loved his church. And that involves a lot of different things that carry some huge responsibilities. But one of those responsibilities is tied up here in being a watchman. It's offering protection. It's leading by, by being able to see the dangers as they're out on the horizon so that the ship can be steered away from harm off into safety. This is one of the fundamental problems that took place in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? Adam was failing at his very important responsibility to be watchful. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6, we read that Eve gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her. Adam was there, right there by her side. He wasn't on the other side of the garden, and he walks up and sees her eating this fruit from this tree. No, he was, he was right there the entire time, and he failed to be a watchman, to, to find the danger and to act courageously to protect his wife. Adam failed to protect Eve. And as a result, all of mankind fell into sin and misery. And remember who God holds responsible for all of this. Eve was tempted by the serpent. Eve was the first to eat the fruit. And yet, God turns to Adam in his guilt. Why? Because Adam had the very important responsibility to be watchful. He had the important responsibility to be on guard. He had the important responsibility to protect. And he failed. Now that protection comes in various forms. It may be physical. Men, you may get roughed up. 
But if the time comes and it's necessary to jump into action, you should willingly jump into action and be ready to put your life on the line to protect. That's part of the sixth commandment. You have an obligation to protect life. And sometimes that means risking your very own. You have an obligation to protect emotionally. That's what Peter's mainly getting at in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he commands husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Why? Because he says that women are, are weaker vessels. He's not being derogatory or chauvinistic here. This isn't about who can bench press more weight in the marriage. This is mainly about emotional and spiritual strength even though physicality certainly does come into play. But men, we have a, a special obligation to be watchful for anything that can be an emotional or spiritual attack on those we're called to protect. And then we have an obligation to react. Part of leading, which every man is called to do on some level, part of leading is watching and protecting. And so when you're in a battle and you're on guard duty, you're always supposed to be alert and watching. Your eyes scanning the horizon, safety off on your weapon, ready to take aim and shoot at the enemy at any point in time if they seek to break in. Are you alert? Are you ready to fend off predators? That's what God calls a godly man to do, to be watchful. Now, brothers, listen, this isn't always an appreciated task because sometimes that means you're going to have to gently, patiently, and lovingly identify, and particularly here, married men with your wives, that there may be things that maybe she's listening to or reading or doing or interested in that might not be biblical or might not be helpful. They might even be harmful. And so she may love doing some kind of study about getting out of the pit or breaking free, but there are some underlying problems there. And if you're not addressing them, they can be a means by which she starts holding on to some false ideas, some false teachings, some dangerous practices, some untrue ways of thinking about God. Now, there are a lot of implications there. If a man's going to be equipped to do that, he has to know, at least he has to know the Word, right? But but that's an obligation. It is a responsibility that God has given us that we are washing our wives in the Word. In order to do that, we must know it and we must be alert. We must be watchful to what is put before them. So physically, emotionally, spiritually, even though our culture tells us that modern women don't want to be protected, or even more so that they don't need someone to watch out for them, a godly woman will readily tell you that that's what she desires. And I'll make the very unpopular argument that it's actually even what ungodly women desire, and yet they're suppressing that truth, that notion to uphold some cultural feminist ideal. But especially godly women have a great respect for men who take seriously the call to lead and to be watchful and to stand in the face of danger and ridicule and harm. To fill the gap and to take the blows for others, to protect them and to keep them from harm. That's a calling on biblical men that requires a lot of other elements to be in place, some of which we'll get to in just a moment. So the question, men, we have to ask ourselves is, how am I doing? The reality is that most of us 
tend to respond to situations like our father Adam when it comes to this area. In our flesh, we're lazy and we want to be left alone. I'm not pointing fingers. I know my own heart. I have to look at myself in the mirror every day. If we have our own way, we would love to be left alone with all of our expensive guy toys and we'd have a place in our house where we could retreat to and we could just do all of our hobbies without any distractions, without anyone asking us questions, without any responsibilities. We wouldn't have a schedule to keep. We wouldn't have deadlines to meet. We would just hang out and do our thing, right? (laughs) It's easy to slip into that mode. It is easy to stop being watchful. But there's a sense of urgency conveyed here, isn't there? Be on the lookout. Don't fall asleep. Don't slack off. You have a lot of responsibility, more than anyone else in your home. And the enemy is looking for weak spots. He's looking for places in the wire, in the perimeter, where he can break in and steal and kill and destroy. And so when he finds one, he's going to attack. So what are you doing? Here's the question you need to think about. What are you doing to be watchful of the souls that you're responsible for, including yourself? The next thing Paul shows us in the text really helps build some foundation under that first command. The second thing is that biblical men are faithful. Very simply, Paul says to stand firm in the faith. Now, we can all certainly love that he says that and give a few manly grunts in agreement, right? Mm. When I go to conferences with a bunch of pastors, I always laugh because someone's preaching and they'll say something and everyone agrees and all you hear around the room is, mmm, mmm. <laughs> the last conference I went to, I hear this room of grunts and afterwards a man came up to me and he said, that was a great sermon and there was a lot of agreement in the room, but most of these guys aren't going to change anything in their lives about how they apply that from day to day. That's a slap in the face, isn't it? But here's what Paul is calling us to, to stand firm in the faith, to hear the word of God and to put the word of God into practice. And it's good and important and and true that we keep believing. He's certainly telling us that. We can't downplay that. But to be a biblical man that's faithful is more than that. It's to, to not be ashamed of the gospel. It's to be a man who is continuously being saturated in the Word of God, communicating with the Spirit of God and, and the, the Lord Jesus Christ that we are standing in the truth, that we know because it's so deeply embedded in our hearts, it's so much in our minds, it's reading God's Word, it's reading good books about God's Word, it's listening to good sermons, talking to other brothers about the Word of God, continuing to grow and grow and grow in our faith, leading our families in worship, discussing the things of God with our children, and just making sure we are daily having some interaction with the Word of God, and when we are able, interaction with the people of God. And when that happens, it's really amazing the courage that comes. When we're saturated in the Word of God, the courage that comes when we might be faced with those who try to intimidate us in our faith, or try to push back against us because of our faith. 
But being a man who stands firm is to be a man who presses forward, who moves toward confrontation and doesn't back away from it. I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm talking about not backing down from the truth. There's this great passage in in Proverbs 31. You all know Proverbs 31 is mainly about godly women, but in verse 23 it says this. It says, Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. And so you see one of the attributes of a godly, noble woman is that she uses all of her feminine intuition and all of her godliness to strengthen, to build up her husband so that he can go and be the man that God has called him to be. And that is to sit among other men, to go out into the workplace, if you will, to be in the world, to go into the community, and to stand as a godly man among other men to bear witness about his faith. That's what God is calling us to do in this passage. So you see, to be a man who stands firm in the faith is not to be a man who sits in his man cave all day or who is standing firm in the faith on Facebook, winning all of his arguments. It means you're part of a living, breathing community of faith. Now, men are often fond of saying about things that I'm really busy. You ask men, how are you doing? I'm really busy. Okay, all of us are really busy. And so what's happened to the church over the years is that men have convinced themselves that they're really too busy for the church. And the Lord's work is eventually done by guys we call pastors and then all of the women in the church. And so many local churches, and I'm thankful We really don't see this, but many local churches lack faithful male leadership and lack men being active in the church because they can't stand, and they can't stand firm in the faith because they're not part of biblical community. Really, they've abandoned it because they've settled for being busy. And all that time away from the church doesn't help one to stand firm in the faith. So a lot of men who have wives who are far more spiritually minded than they are because they're not spending any time thinking about it, contemplating it, discussing it, reading about it, or listening to it. It's a priority, brothers. I guarantee your busyness isn't as busy as you think it is. It's just what you're prioritizing. And biblical men prioritize biblical community and being saturated in the things of God so that we can stand firm in the faith. And maybe for you this morning, there is an opportunity for you to stand firm in the faith in the way that you haven't before. Maybe for some of you, it's that you're not even a Christian and you've been uh, loafing around in life looking for meaning that you're not going to find in other places. But you're not going to find meaning in the things of this world. You're not going to find meaning apart from that which only Christ can provide. The only place you find meaning in life is when your faith and your trust and your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ who has called you by faith to look to Him, to trust in Him and to live in His righteousness alone and not your own. To be transformed by Him that you would have new life. And so Jesus calls all men everywhere to have faith in Him, to trust in Him, because no matter how good you might think you are, you fail to live up to His standard, to His perfect, righteous, and holy law. 
He calls you to die to yourself that you might live in Him. And so to stand firm in the faith is to stand upon Christ and not upon yourself. The world will tell you to have faith in yourself. The Bible tells you to die to yourself and have faith in Christ who has done all for you that you might live. Now maybe you're a believer and you have a strong sense that you should be doing more for the kingdom, preaching the gospel or getting more involved in missions or serving the specific area of ministry that you've been holding back on because you just don't want to commit yourself or, or be spread too thin because, remember, you're really busy. You might have to miss a few opportunities of doing your favorite hobby. Now, for some of you, it might, might not be going to the other side of the globe to be a missionary. It might be going across your street to invite your neighbor to church. It might be going across your living room to start investing some more time in the spiritual well-being of your wife and children. Listen, I realize all of us have incredibly busy lives. I'm with you. But what are you busy with? One of the stories I love about Charles Spurgeon, I'm, I want to corroborate it to make sure it's true, but the principle stands nonetheless. It's been told that the Prime Minister of England once came to visit Charles Spurgeon and his wife Susanna answered the door and she invited him in and said, Mr. Prime Minister, you can have a seat here. Mr. Spurgeon will be with you soon. And after a while he sat and he sat and he sat and Spurgeon never showed up and the Prime Minister found Susanna in the house and said, where is he? I've been waiting for a long time. And she said, Prime Minister, I realize you're a very important man but Mr. Spurgeon is currently in his study and he's meeting with the king. Do you have that perspective, men? I think most of us wouldn't hesitate to drop everything for the opportunity to meet a president or to meet the Queen of England or, or someone along those lines. But when you are communicating with God, you're meeting with the king of all heaven and earth. Or all of you, all of these things that we do in life, are they, are they crowding out our time? And they become more important than meeting with the king? We must evaluate our lives so that we can stand firm in the faith. And there is no standing firm in the faith if we have no time for the king. Well, Paul goes on. The third thing we see this morning, one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture and Paul shows us, thirdly, that biblical men are masculine. Look at what he says. He says this, very simply, three words, act like men. Sounds simple enough, right? But in a culture that has decided that two gender distinctions just aren't enough, so we've invented others, this isn't as plain as it may seem. In the state of New York now, the state government legally recognizes 31 different genders, and if you work in the state government and you fail to identify someone according to their preferred gender, you can lose your job and face massive fines. So this statement, act like men, isn't so simple anymore. It's probably one of the most offensive, triggering things that the Bible can say to the 21st century. In Corinth, Paul was dealing with men who were going soft and addressing all kinds of sexual perversions and rampant sin and unholiness and concern for the purity of the church and how she functions and what she does. Today, we're dealing with men who want to dress and appear as women 
And boys who with their parents are trying to turn into girls and being afraid to make absolute statements about certain clothing or toys or behaviors being explicitly for boys or for girls. Up until about 20 minutes ago, it has been the norm throughout all of human history that boys don't wear dresses and high heels. But remember, we're moving into a monist one-world direction where all of the distinctions are being erased and fading away. Now, act like a man doesn't mean that we're all supposed to necessarily dress up in camouflage and go kill something in the woods with our bare hands. That's cool. That's certainly a masculine kind of thing to do in a lot of ways. But we're not talking about machoism. This isn't about lifting heavy weights and driving big, loud trucks. But there is something about masculinity that looks like men wanting to line up and to defend. And when their family or their community or their nation is attacked, that they have a natural inclination to want to protect. It is masculine to run toward danger to suppress a threat while everyone else is running away. It is masculine to put your safety and your reputation and your honor on the line to stand up for what's right no matter what. It is masculine to tell the world that to get to your wife and to your children and to your grandchildren or that old lady that lives in the upstairs apartment or that old man that lives next door by himself, in order to get to them, they're going to have to kill you first. That's masculine. That's not machoism, that's biblical. Think about all of the warriors in the Old Testament. Those were some men. They weren't guys complaining about the lack of turkey bacon at their local bistro. (laughs) They weren't mad because their craft beer selection at the pub was too hoppy. These were men that were surrounded by enemies and they said, play the man. You go that way, I'll go this way, and the Lord will do what seems right to him. It was an unwavering commitment to trusting God and going all in in battle to do what's right for the good of one's home and one's community and one's nation. Being a man who acts like a man is one who's not ashamed. Not ashamed of Christ. And not ashamed that when you talk about Christ that your eyes fill with tears because you talk about the goodness and the love and the beauty and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, men in our culture are, are so often denigrated and portrayed as, as weak and helpless without their supercharged feminist wives. But in large part, that's because there aren't a lot of men who act like men in our day. We need men of courage today. Men like Stephen and Peter and Paul and James. Men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who look at danger and say, we don't care what you say. We'll never abandon our faith in our God. And and if you want to burn us, go ahead and burn us. God will save us. But even if he doesn't, you're not worth denying our Lord over. Are you that kind of man? Are you the kind of man who wants our boys to see what a man is? And to see that in you. That others will look to you with their sons and say, look at him. Look at how he commits his life and how he conducts his business, and how he leads his home, and how he's committed to his church. 
Our society will rise and fall based on whether or not we have men who act like men. Men who are tough when they need to be tough. Men who are loving and tender and gracious and kind-hearted and sweet when they need to be. Men who will just as willingly take a bullet for his family as he will get on the floor and play with his baby daughter. Men who will stand on the rooftop and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord just as readily as he'll go to work on time each and every day and work as hard as he can for the glory of God. Brothers, as children of God, if we're not going to be those men, who will? And if we're not going to be those men, then what will our sons become? God's men need to act like men. The world depends on it, and the Lord commands it. He's a God of means, and he's calling you and I to be his means to bring about these ends. And so do it. Here's what else that means. Very quickly, we've already touched on these two things briefly. The fourth thing he says is that biblical men are strong. And we're not talking about physical strength here. This isn't going to the gym every day necessarily. You're welcome to do that. That's not a bad thing. But we can't all look like Jermaine. That's not what Paul means here. (laughs) You're a very strong man, Jermaine. Paul would like that about you. But this is what we've been saying all around. It, It means to have the courage and the fortitude to stand up and to be counted when there's danger or other evil. God does not desire for men to stand by idly and allow harm or to permit wickedness. We are called to keep others safe within all the covenant relationships we enter into. In our family, our presence is to make our wives and children know that they're secure, that they can live at ease. At church, we're called to stand for truth and godliness against the encroachment of worldliness and error. In society, we're to take our place as as men who stand up against evils. Evils like the destruction of the family or the murder of children. We're called to defend the nation from threat of danger. A strong man needs to be able to take a punch. Again, I'm not necessarily talking physical here, although that can be helpful. I'm talking about all the punches that will come your way when you're being a man in this world that wants more than anything. This world wants more than anything to strip you of your God-given masculinity and hand you over to the wickedness of a feminist agenda. So when you have a business and you refuse to bow to the new cultural ideas of the day because you stand on timeless biblical priorities and principles and you start getting death threats and your business is boycotted and a local government tries to shut you down and run you off, what are you going to do? A biblical man stands in strength and conviction. I have this picture in my mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible describes him as meek and mild and as a prince of peace, but then he's being beaten beyond belief, beyond recognition, leading up to the cross. And the Gospels are essentially saying he took it like the man of all men because that's what he is, right? He would take little children on his lap and love them. He would cry when his friends died. He would love the abused women and disabled people in the streets. And then he would see someone making a blasphemous mockery of the temple, and he would go and make a whip and drive them out. And so they knew that he was serious. 
Real strength is having the fortitude to do the right thing, but it's also knowing when and how to use that strength. Real biblical strength is having self-control. Real biblical masculine strength is being slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen. Real masculine biblical strength is being wise as a serpent and yet gentle as a dove. Last thing, Paul shows us that biblical men are loving. Verse 14, Paul ends up telling us what we've already been saying this morning that I hope we're well aware of. Biblical men are loving. Do you know what keeps men from being puffed up and self-centered, lazy jerks? True biblical love. And true biblical love looks like committing to the people around us and staying committed to the people around us. Staying faithful in our vows of marriage. Staying faithful to our children and being there for them when they need us. And pouring into their souls and reading to them and hugging them and kissing them and disciplining them when they need to be disciplined and teaching them the things of God through all of it. It looks like loving our wives by making sure we're doing our part to maintain an orderly home that the family and guests can be comfortable in and not spending all of our time looking for ways to escape our responsibilities. It means making sure we make time to talk to and listen to our wives even if we don't feel like it. It means doing everything we can to provide for those people we've committed ourselves to because we have a primary responsibility to make sure that our needs are met so long as we are physically able to meet them. Biblical men are also men that love other men. Not just so they can drink beer and watch games with them, but men that they can talk about real life with, share their struggles, talk about the things of God. Men that they can cry in front of and not be embarrassed because they're, they're tender-hearted when the Spirit is at work. Moving us to compassion, moving us to thankfulness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I, was a, when I was a young man as a Christian and other Christian men told me that they loved me, it was a difficult thing for me to know how to respond. Not because I didn't love them, but because... When I grew up in my home, we didn't tell each other that we love each other all the time. It, was, it, was, it just felt strange. But now I love to tell other men that I love them because the Lord has loved me in such a way that I want that to overflow into the lives of others. I want others to know that I genuinely care about them and it's not just the way that I say it. I hope it's in what I do and how I do it. Men, are we loving one another? How are we doing that? You may not have a ton of friends, and that's fine. Some of you, I know why that is. (laughs) But you should have some friends. And when you are with those friends, how are you fulfilling this call to biblical masculinity with your friends? Are you loving them? Don't be ashamed of that. The Lord Jesus has loved you so much that he died for you. There's nothing unmanly about that. So brothers, let's think on these things. Let's act like men. Don't back away. Man up and press on.